our Christmas season, and I want to start out by telling you a non-Christmas story. Uh, Sarah and I were married, um, and within the first 11 years of marriage, we moved eight times. Across country from California to Illinois, to Florida, to Milwaukee, to South Carolina, and several times uh, within, the, within state. So we became rather good experts at packing and moving. And we did learn one secret, that if you want to pack and move consistently, you have to have the same size box. And if you have the same size box for everything, it goes into the van or the trailer or the truck a lot easier than uh, if they're all mismatched type of boxes. But I remember one move from Milwaukee to South Carolina, and uh, everything had gotten moved into where we were, but we were missing a box. I was missing a box. Now, this was no ordinary box. Yes, it was the same size as all the other boxes, but it was the important box. It was the box that contained everything I thought was of extreme value on paper. So it had our tax returns, it had um, who knows what other paperwork, but it had all the valuable pieces of paper, and I couldn't find it because that box looked the same as every other hundred boxes we had. And I was frantically going through, uh, we were in a trailer at that time, I was frantically going through all the boxes in the trailer trying to find the special box, and I couldn't find it, and I couldn't find it. It was gone. Somehow that box mysteriously vanished. I found every other box but that one box. And Sarah kept telling me, Tim, it's got to be here. We didn't lose a box. We packed it. We know it's here. And eventually, about 10 minutes later, I found the box. Crisis averted. Oh, that's not plausworthy. Uh, but thank you. But I found the box. And again, didn't look at it for another couple of years because it was paperwork you don't need unless there's some kind of problem in life or whatever. But it was, at the moment, a major crisis in my life. And this morning, we're going to look at a crisis that was facing Israel. Now, some crisis can be major, life-changing, and some can be just little minor crises that happen. A little bump in the road, you're over it, you're done with, and life moves on. So I have a list of a few crises, and I want us by popular vote to tell us whether or not this crisis is a major crisis or is it something minor that, eh, it's a bump in the road, don't get all excited about it, okay? And I'm going to warn you as we go through this list, it is a powerful list. A little funny, but also powerful. So the first one, major or minor, I can't find my favorite shirt. Major or minor. In, if all things are being equal, it's going to be a minor crisis. You're going to get over it. It's going to be okay if you can't find your favorite shirt. Another, major or minor. I, if I see one more person not use their turn signal, I'm going to... You fill in the blank. Major or minor? Wow, you got one. If you're driving with me, it's probably major. But no, it's in, in all of life, it's a minor thing, right? A small inconvenience, a little inconsiderate, definitely against the law, but hey, it's a minor. All right, next one. I just lost 
my job. Major. I didn't hear any minors out there. Major. Major life change. Major life moment of, okay, how are things going to be put back together? Am I going to find a new job? So there's a lot of emotion and pressure and stress that comes along with that particular crisis. Here's another one. UPS is taking way too long to deliver my package. I see on the app that it's a mile away and it's still not here. Major or minor? All things being equal, it's a real minor issue. Although I see it circling my block for an hour, it just can't get to my house. Might feel major, but it really is a minor inconvenience of life. Not a major crisis. Next one. The doctor said, I have cancer. Major. Major. Next one. Why is so-and-so not liking my picture, my post, my story? They like everybody else's today, but they ignored mine. Why are they not liking it and loving it and sharing it? Major or minor crisis of life? Minor. Really, it is minor. If you get self-worth from people acknowledging that you posted something, oh, you, have, you, are so much, you are worth so much more than a like on Facebook or Instagram. You are worth so much more than that. So it is a minor crisis in life. The bills are due today, and there is zero in my account. Major or minor life crisis? Major. Absolutely major, because you know the money's going to come out, and there's no money to come out, and whew, major life challenge, absolutely. Now, here's one that hits home a little bit for me. We are out of milk. I'm going to say major, because I've lived in a household for one hour that had no milk, because we hadn't gone to the store yet that morning. And all hell can break loose if we don't have milk. Heaven forbid you suggest there's water. There's plenty of water. I've, I've seen it come out every day out of that faucet. There is plenty of water. Drink water. Oh, I need milk. All right, I'll go to the store. All right, uh, last one. And I said that some of these are going to hit home. My marriage is coming to an end. Major. Major. I think we can all agree that there are some minor inconveniences that we kind of make a mountain out of a molehill and think that the world is falling apart. And there are some life events that occur that are tragic and they pierce us. They are indeed a crisis. Israel, in Isaiah chapter 7, is facing a major, major crisis. Now, just to give us a little bit of backstory, because I know that it can be confusing in the Old Testament, when God founded the nation of Israel, gave the land as a promise to Abraham, we went through the whole Moses thing, they were in Egypt, they are now in the promised land, King Saul was the first king, then came King David, and King David's son Solomon became the third king of the whole nation of Israel. After Solomon died, the nation of Israel was divided into two, and it was a north-south division. The north had 11 tribes, 
and the south had one tribe, the tribe of Judah. And in the property line of the tribe of Judah was the capital city of Jerusalem. And so in Scripture, when you hear, especially in the same verse or the same chapter, talks about Israel and Judah, what they're talking about is that division that has already taken place, that divided kingdom of the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. They're both God's people. But at that moment, after King Solomon died and his sons took over and the land got divided, from that point on in Scripture, we have this division of Israel and Judah. And Judah stayed faithful longer than Israel did, the northern kingdoms. The northern kingdoms gave themselves over to every debauchery there was. People invaded. God judged them. They were taken into captivity. They came back. They still were not happy. God judged them. God took them away again. And then eventually Judah, that southern kingdom, also fell to their debauchery, and God judged them. That's where we have the time of Daniel, and we saw last year, or earlier this year, uh, Nehemiah kind of comes in and tries to reestablish Jerusalem and Judea. And so you hear Judea and Judah and Israel in the north, Judea, Judah, and Jerusalem in the south. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, in the first few verses, we have a major crisis that puts into perspective that division of God's people, the people in the north and the people in the south. And that's where we pick it up in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. When Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah. So Ahaz, Ahaz was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was. They were the last faithful remnant. So the king was there. King Rezin of Aram and Parakah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. So we have the king of Israel aligning themselves with other kings within the area to attack their own people, Jerusalem. Because Israel, the northern kingdom, wanted to take possession of especially Jerusalem because that was the capital city. It had everything going for it. It had the temple. And really, that's all they wanted. They wanted the temple. They still had this weird, perverse thought that if they had the temple, they'd be indestructible. That it was sort of a lucky charm for them. And so the king of Judah hears that the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, along with some of his allies, were going to attack him. And so he was... Uh, fighting that, but they resisted that first wave of attacks. So Jerusalem was safe. Verse 2, now the house of David was told, house of David is another one of those words that refer to Jerusalem and Judah. Okay, so when it says the house of David, we're talking about the southern kingdom, that faithful remnant, especially the city of Jerusalem. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, and the hearts, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the winds. So now Jerusalem and the king of Jerusalem, Ahaz, and all the people hear that the northern kingdom sold over to debauchery and every sinful practice now allied himself with another powerful friend. And so everyone in Jerusalem was freaking out. We resisted him once, but now he has a new ally. Are we going to be able to resist him a second time? And they were so scared that Isaiah records that they were like trees of the forest shaken by the wind. 
Did anyone notice the wind the last couple days? Whew. Yes. That's how the people's hearts were. They were terrified and scared. We go on in verse 3. So they're scared of what the northern kingdom is going to do to them. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, okay, God's prophet, Go out, you and your son, Shear Jeshab, and Midhazaz, and at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field, and say to him, so there's an appointed time. Isaiah, I want you to go meet the king in this appointed spot. Everyone knows where that is. In this day and age, I have no clue where that is, nor the commentaries. And say to him, be careful. Keep calm and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the sons of Remaliah. Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make the son of Tabel king over it. The Lord sees exactly what's happening to his people. He knows the heart of the king is terrified. He knows the people are terrified. So he sends his prophet, Isaiah who is close to God, who knows God, who listens to God, who is dedicated and faithful and a tremendous warrior of the faith, and says, go and tell the king, take a breath, relax, it's okay. From my perspective, this crisis is minor because they're just smoldering pieces of wood and ember. They're, they're not a raging fire. They pose no threat to you. I'm God. They pose no threat. Don't worry. I know that they are, they have plans. I know that they are amassing an army. I know that they are going to try to overwhelm you with force and power and fear tactics. Stay calm. I love that verse 4. Be careful. Keep calm. Do not be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these smoldering stubs of firewood. How many times can God say that in our lives? I know what you're facing. I know the crisis. I know in your eyes it is huge, whatever it might be. It might be a major crisis. But God is still the God who sees the entire field. He sees your entire life. He sees your past, your present, and your entire future. And he can confidently say, I know this seems big. I know this seems insurmountable. I know this freaks you out. But be calm. Be steady. Take a breath. Breathe in, breathe out. To me, that crisis of not being able to find the important box, the crisis of losing your job, the crisis of finding out from the doctor you have cancer, that crisis of your marriage feels like it's falling apart, take a breath. They're small to me, God says. Isaiah continues in verse 7. We hear actually from the Lord. The difference between God's confidence in word and man's confidence. There's a difference between those two. And so in verse 7, we read of Isaiah 7. Yet this is what the Sovereign Lord says. So 
God has already said, here's the circumstances. Here's what's going on. I get it. You're afraid? Be calm, because everything to me is a small burning ember. It's not a raging inferno that's attacking you. It's small and insignificant in my eyes, God says. And then he says this. It will not take place. It won't happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. And what God is saying there, hey, I understand you think this powerful enemy is attacking you. It's one man. One man. What is one man compared to the sovereign Lord? One man could command every military in the world, but it doesn't matter. It's still a man versus God. Okay? So God tries to put it in perspective to Ahaz, the king of Judah. And he says further in verse uh, 8, Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. He basically says that whole threat you have, in 65 years, they're going to be nothing. And immediately I can imagine Ahaz, the king, thinking to himself, so in 65 years, this threat's going to go away? How does that help me now? You see, because we are very preoccupied with, well, it needs to be solved now. I've got cancer now, it needs to be gone. I've got marriage problems now, it needs to be gone. I lost my job, I need a new one. Now, we are so ingrained to want it immediately that we get frustrated and sometimes leads into sin when UPS is an hour late compared to what they said on their website they should be here. God's perspective of time is irrelevant. It is God's power and authority that matters in our life, not his timeline. If he said, I'll take care of it in six years, six minutes, six seconds, or 60 years, our response should be, okay, God's taking care of it. But in our minds, there's a huge difference between taking care of it in six seconds and waiting 65 years. But in God's perspective, he's like, I'm taking care of it. Time is irrelevant. I'm God. Do I not have the power to do this? Do I not have the authority to do this? Do I not have your comfort and love as a prime motivation to do this? It certainly is. But we are so consumed. Now, 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 now. Fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it, fix it. And sometimes God has to say, hey, step back. Be calm. Realize that this is a small thing compared to the time of eternity that we have. 65 years is not that long. But in 65 years, King Ahaz is going to be a moot point because they're not even going to be around anymore. So they're not going to be able to invade you. They're toast. Verse 9. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only... Ramaliah's son, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Hazaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depth or the highest height. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. So God says, in the end, these are only mere men compared to the sovereign Lord, 
who you are fighting against. And the sovereign Lord is on your side. I've always said, and I believe it truly to the bottom of my heart, if you stand alone with God, you are always in the majority. Even if you are the only one standing on that principle, only one standing on that truth, the only one standing on that promise, if you're standing with God, you're always in the majority. You are always safe. You are always in a fortress. You are always near to the only hope and help that you will ever need. If you are near to God, you are in the majority. But God makes it very clear. You've got to stand in your faith. You've got to believe this. And he says in a rare circumstance here, ask of me anything to prove that I am who I say I am. Ask me anything to prove that I will be faithful. Ask me anything to prove that all of this will come to nothing. Ask me anything, Ahaz. And at first glance, you might think, King Ahaz of Judah, the king in Jerusalem, oh, he's a pretty godly person because he, he shies away of asking the Lord anything. In fact, he says, quote, verse 12, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And we might think to ourselves, well, that's a very Christian, mature thing to say. I don't need a sign. But we have to have a little history and understanding of who this king was where his heart truly was. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this out of 2 Kings chapter 16. But 2 King is a history book of the kings of the southern kingdom. So this is what history records about King Ahaz. At first we know from chapter 7 of Isaiah that he's scared, that he's already resisted one invasion, but another one is coming, so he and his people are scared. Isaiah comes to him to give him words of comfort. And Isaiah says, you need to be strong and ask a sign. And Azaz says, I don't need a sign. And I think we know from 2 Kings chapter 16 why he doesn't need a sign. Unlike David, his father, which would have been his great-great-grandfather, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God he followed the ways of the kings of Israel, the northern kingdom, and even sacrificed his son in the fire. Engaging in all the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites, he offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. King Azaz was not a godly man. He was a bad king, an evil king. So it didn't matter the Lord coming to him saying, it's going to be fine. Trust in me. He has no trust in God. He's rejected God in his life. He's in this alone. That's why he's so terrified. He doesn't submit to the sovereign Lord of Isaiah. He doesn't believe the sovereign Lord of Isaiah. He doesn't believe his truth. He doesn't believe his promises. He finds no comfort in that. He's a total pagan. He's only wearing the title King of Judah around his neck as a badge. He has nothing in his heart. Nothing. He is indeed alone in his battle. And through his own actions, 
sacrificed his own child to Baal. God says, this is exactly what the people did when I drove them out of here during the days of the judges. I mean, of course, this guy's not going to ask for a sign. He doesn't believe God. Wow. All of a sudden, the text takes a little bit of a turn when we start to learn about history. He's not being godly, full of faith. Oh, I don't need a sign, God. He's putting up his fist going, I don't need no sign from you. I have no respect for you. I don't believe you. I don't believe all this hocus-pocus religion stuff. A temple means nothing to me. Sacrifices mean nothing to me. Oh, I'll sacrifice to an idol. That will give me power. He's far from God. No wonder he is terrified. No wonder that he is shaking like a tree in the wind. Because he realizes he's got nothing to protect him but himself. He's counting numbers. He's not counting the fact that God is on the side of his people. God responds to that unbelief. That true unbelief. You see, we've all had situations. We've all been in them. This crisis. And where God has told us to trust him. And instead we have trusted and relied upon ourselves. We've all been in those situations. Whether it's minor or major, doesn't matter the size of the crisis. When we face a problem, there are times where we say to ourselves, I can go it alone. I can do it myself. And those are moments when we think we have the energy, that the result rests on us, that we bear the burden of success or failure, that we demonstrate that we're more like King Ahaz than David. You know, there's nothing wrong in taking Nehemiah's example when we're faced with something that needs God's help and shooting up a popcorn prayer saying, help. You see, in that quick moment of a Nehemiah popcorn prayer, we are admitting, God, this is too big for me. I know it is a small, minor thing in life, but please, help. Help. There's another time something got lost. Not in my family, but when I was growing up, uh, back in the day, we usually had one set of keys to cars. One set. And that set of keys was a prized set of keys because if those got lost, you usually didn't have all these extra set of keys. There weren't keyless entries where you had a fob. I mean, there was a real key to open the door and a real key to open the trunk, a real key to open the glove box, a real key to open it, you know, to turn the car on. Uh, and I remember... Um, it was not me. It was my mom. It's not embarrassing. It, it's a true story. It's not embarrassing. But she lost the keys in the garage somewhere. And it was a typical garage, meaning that it was not organized. Meaning that there was things everywhere. And from her perspective, she was taking something out of the car, putting it in the house, unlocked a car door, and instead of putting it in a purse or a pocket, she laid it somewhere in the garage. And it got down to she would give my sister or I a dollar to find it. Think of $20 today. Go find the keys. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And my sister and I were out in the garage looking for these. We were looking for money, but in the form of a key. And I remember going back in, very disappointed, uh, 
for a moment thinking my mom made this all up so we could clean the garage, but it wasn't. I wouldn't put it past her. She's really good at that kind of stuff, turning work into a play. But we said we can't find it. And then I remember distinctively her saying, well, let's pray. And I thought, Mom, I mean, yeah, I know we're a religious family. We go to church every Sunday. We're, we're into all that stuff. And looking back, I'm thinking, it's a key. And this, this young kid, me, thinking, why would God even hear, hear a prayer about a lost key? Really? And I didn't vocalize it at the time, but this whole time I'm thinking, she really is one of these religious people, really big into this whole thing of we're going to pray about a key. And we prayed. And uh, she says, okay, let's go back out. And 5, 10, 15 minutes goes by, can't find anything. And then kind of as we're kind of ending the day, uh, she says, okay, let's try it one more time. And so she says something under her breath, I'm assuming it's a prayer. And we look, and they're sitting right on the shelf, right next to the trunk of the car. What she had done is she'd opened the trunk, put the keys on the shelf behind the car, grabbed everything out of the trunk, took it in, and she found the key, and so she kept the money. Yeah. But, I, but that story resonates with me that she taught me an incredibly valuable lesson that if it's bugging you, pray. If it's bugging you, turn to the one who can help. If it's hard for you, doesn't matter if it's small and insignificant in the scheme of the whole world, just send up a prayer to God. It's okay. It's never going to hurt. It's never going to hurt to acknowledge God, ever. Even in the small things of the world, I can't find my shirt, I can't find the box, UPS is late, it is possible for God to intervene even in small little matters. Now, you might be asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with Christmas? So far, this doesn't seem very Christmassy. That comes in the next verses. Azaz has said, I don't need a sign. And so Isaiah responds in verse 13 and says, Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough for you to try patience of humans? Will you also try the patience of my God also? So Isaiah looks at this and knows immediately, Azaz, you have no faith. You're trying God now. You're putting him on the spot. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Ah, Christmas message. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God says, I'll show you a sign that I will like, do exactly what I've said and no harm will come to you. There will be a virgin that will be born. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 and following, Matthew sees the events of what's going on in the birth of Christ and says, but after he had considered this, this is Joseph, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because... What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And this took place.
to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Isaiah's prophecy was given at a time of a time of hopelessness, a time of utter desperation, a time of tremendous fear. God's promise was given to Israel, to, to Ju- Judah, God's people, the house of David, to demonstrate God's amazing power over small crises of life. Now, the virgin birth did not come to solve a small crisis. It came to solve the crisis of humanity, separation from God, the real crisis that matters Am I right with God, and is God right with me? Have we made peace? Have we been reconciled? Are we now father and child? But King Azaz did not heed anything Isaiah said. His life ends in a tumultuous, horrific ending of living godless and dying godless. We have an opportunity to be much different than him. We have an opportunity to take every crisis, even our major and minor ones, and turn to God and say, you are a God of hope. I don't trust in man. I trust in you. I don't trust in my own strength. I trust in you. Whether big or small, God, I want to be on your side. The take-home that we can apply to us today is we can put our trust in God's miraculous power in times of trouble and doubt. Trouble and doubt are not kings in our lives. They have no authority in our lives. They have no power in our lives when the sovereign Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is ours. We can be at peace. We can be calm. In the midst of the storm, he protects. And there is no greater example than we have of God intervening with miracles to solve a crisis than his son, Jesus Christ. So as we look to the Lord's table this morning, and if some of the men could come forward and help with that, I'd appreciate it. But as we look to the table this morning, we can have absolute confidence that this reminds us that God is a God of miracles, overcoming and interceding over every problem and crisis you have, including the big one, our separation from Him. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to take... Your table to celebrate the sacrifice of your son on our behalf, his broken body and shed blood. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that would have faith, knowing that you are able to do all that you have said, and even more so, that you are able to bring calm in the midst of a crisis. Help us, Father, to run to you quickly, to look to you quickly, when we feel a part of our life has just fallen apart. And Lord, it is okay if you take 65 years to resolve it. The time doesn't matter. The fact that you have committed to resolve the conflict of our relationship is good enough for us. Pray in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen.